0: Welcome to Heaven and Earth. I'm joined with Alistair Roberts. And I think we're going to primarily talk about James Jordan and biblical interpretation. Maybe go back and forward. Uh, but before we get going, Alistair, do you mind introducing yourself?
1: Certainly. Um I'm Alistair Roberts. I'm dividing my time at the moment between New York City and where I currently am in Stoke on Trent in the West Midlands of the UK. I teach for the Davenant and Theopolis Institutes. And I also am producing finishing off producing a complete audio commentary on the whole bible
0: yeah and as you were joining this kind of zoom call i was listening to your genesis lectures i think i was uh i, I was around 50 or so minutes and you have this like 10 hour thing on youtube where you go through every chapter it's really interesting um wh- why did you decide to do that by the way release chapter by chapter commentary online
1: yeah so originally it took the form of commentary upon the lectionary so mm-hmm. the lectionary of the Um, 2019 ACNA Book of Common Prayer. Every day I wanted to um, do something on each one of the readings and it was designed to encourage people to be reading the Bible and spending time thinking about meditating upon it every single day. So part of the purpose was to give people some sort of guidance working through the passage and then also give them some impetus at the end to think about it a bit further in ways that they might not have done otherwise. And so I've believe very strongly in the importance of scripture within the life of Christians. And so encouraging people not to be scared of some of the difficult parts in Leviticus or in other parts, maybe the end of Ezekiel or something like that to actually spend time in the text, to listen to it, to learn how to be attentive and to find um, just how rich it is. So that was my intent and it ended up being the first phase for a larger project,
0: which became the complete commentary. So, so why is Leviticus in the Bible? You mentioned it. Nobody reads. It, no, so I, no, I know people read it, but few average believers open up Leviticus or First Chronicles one to nine for their spiritual, you know, nourishment. So, why is Leviticus for Christians in the Bible? Like, what was, what's your kind of elevator pitch?
1: Yes. So, first of all, it was originally written for the Jews in the context of coming out of Egypt and setting up this whole sacrificial system, but it does something beyond that, beyond just giving the instructions for setting this process in motion. It gives people means by which to think about that, process of sacrifice more generally. So even if you're performing these things in the temple in Jerusalem, you're thinking about what these things mean within the larger fabric of the sacrificial system. So it gives you a a larger world within which these particular rites mean something. Now, in the context that we find ourselves in, where there's no longer a standing temple in Jerusalem, where these things have been fulfilled in Christ and in his body, the book has a different role to play in our lives and so the role that Leviticus plays I think in the life of the church can be um, it can have a number of different facets to it so one thing it can do is help us understand the logic of worship so for instance we see the different types of sacrifice in Leviticus and the way that they are all ordered finally towards communion with God and so the culmination of the sacrificial system is in many ways the celebration of the peace offering or the communion offering. And so thinking about the processes along the way, dealing with sin, expiation, having the process of ascension, um, offering yourself up to God in, um, in that, the memorials that are part of that, offering yourself and your works, and then the we- means by which we are made to sit at God's table. All of that helps us to understand what we're doing, When we engage in worship. And beyond that, I think to have a a proper full orbed understanding of what Christ Mm. performed in his atonement. Now, if you're just going with an abstract atonement theology that's detached from the book of Leviticus, I think you'll end up missing a lot of the things that are there. And also, I think Leviticus gives us ways in which to read the rest of the Bible. So um, it gives us a framework for thinking about what temple is, what worship is, and so much of the rest of the Bible is about movement towards this great glorified temple in the new heavens and the new earth and the fulfillment of worship. And so I think we've got a lot of things within the book of Leviticus that are designed not just for the Israelites coming out of Egypt, not just for people reflecting upon the sacrificial system in the old covenant, but for Christians who want to think about what we're doing when we engage in worship. And then also to understand just the wisdom of God in his ordering of the process of salvation. I found it fruitful in all of those regards.
0: I think when I've answered this question, part of the answer is Leviticus, at least how I would say it, provides a symbolic structure to understand Christ. Now, not just Christ as a human or whatever, but all the things that are around him, the basic structure of life and death, if you're near death, you're outside the camp. If you're near life, you're closer to God. There's light inside the tabernacle. You know, all these kind of symbolic things that you learn, then you hear Jesus talk about life and light and all that. It gives you insight into the meaning of what Christ does because you have the intellectual or symbolic structure to understand his work. Now I'm sure you have your own take on that, just kind of my own words. I mean, you
1: can also think about it in terms of the larger or full view of the Pentateuch. You have in the book of Exodus, at the end of Exodus, the setting up of the tabernacle. That's seen as a sort of new creation event, the way that the tabernacle is described. Then you get into Leviticus, which is about how do you worship in the tabernacle? How does the tabernacle, which is the place of God's special dwelling, become a place of communion, a, a tent of meeting? and then you go to Numbers, how do you order the camp around this tent of meeting? So that the order of the tent of meeting extends out to the whole of the life of the camp around it. And then in Deuteronomy, How do you extend that out into life in the land that you're about to enter? How does the logic of the law at the heart of the people spread out into all these different cases and apply to all these different facets of communal life? And so in many ways, these are the sorts of questions that we have as Christians. How do we think about what we're doing in worship? How do we think about what we are theologically, the temple of the Lord that's being established through us in our midst as the body of Christ and the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, how do we think about how that flows out in its logic to encompass our life together as a church outside of our gathering? How does it extend out into our society more broadly? And how do the principles of God's commandments inform every single aspect of our lives? Those are the sorts of questions that you see moving um, through the books of the Pentateuch And these are the sorts of questions Mm. that we are equipped, I think, to answer as we reflect upon them.
0: What you're saying, at least by implication, is something that might be hard for some people to to catch on to, because for most of us, when we think of like the Christian life, we think of the New Testament, the gospel books in particular, and then really the letters of Paul. Revelation is something like once a decade your pastor preaches on, and it's like- The first few chapters. Yeah, the the first few chapters. And it's cool. It's kind of like a movie. Uh, You're scared about getting left behind and so on. But for the most part, when you read the old test, I mean, not that pastors and churches don't, but there's a sense in which it's harder for us to understand how they are fully scripture and are for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. One author that you recommended on Twitter recently, and then as as I do, okay, I'll buy the book, (laughs) uh, was... James Jordan's book through new eyes developing uh, then the subtitle developing a biblical view of the world which is just kind of an interesting title not a biblical worldview but a biblical view of the world and he kind of if I could just the one sentence thing is he's basically saying the entire bible uh, is created according to this was was written in a world full of symbols and those symbols have meaning which you should study understand and by understanding those symb- those symbols you have a keener sense of what the bible's about and then also how to live today so why did you recommend this book and how does that and you could rephrase it however you want to have what the thesis is why is it useful and good how do you how do you use his methodology
1: yes yeah, so in my own experience the first time i read that book um as i was late teens um, and first read it and just completely seemed alien and strange to me and I put it down and didn't revisit it until a few years later and then when I read it it blew my mind because it caused a number of things that had formerly been strange and alien to me to start to crystallize and make sense so What I find it very helpful for is teaching you how to read the Bible attentively, to understand the world that the Bible is putting forward, which is our world, but helping us to see it in ways that maybe we're not accustomed to. So we're used to seeing the world through particular frameworks that are quite alien to the biblical text itself. So if you're reading the biblical text, you'll see a lot of symbolism going on. For instance, why is it that A temple is so important. A temple just seems like a strange thing to give so much of the biblical material, devote so much of the biblical material to. Or sacrificial systems. I mean, we would never think you need to explain the truth of God's dwelling with his people to a nation. Hey, I know you can have this symbolic building and you can have a sacrificial system. That just seems strange and alien to us. And yet that's a lot of what the Old Testament contains. And so what um, James Jordan really, I think, equips us to do is to think about the Bible on its own terms, particularly the Old Testament. And then from that to have an understanding of our world and have an understanding of what it means to be Christians within a world that's very much framed in terms of sacrifice, temple, in terms of this um, symbolic view of the world and part of it is recognizing typology. So typology is recognizing that things don't just stand by themselves. there are ways in which events are related through history. So we could think about this as musical motifs that repeat and develop. there are variations, there are um, different, ways in which they can be inverted or they can be um, developed to a greater extent so if you're reading through the bible one of the things that i've written on is the theme of exodus so as you're reading through the bible again and again you see this theme repeated in various forms so let's say you're in genesis chapter 19 and there are two angels that come to sodom lot is sitting in the door in the gate of the city he invites them in for a meal they have unleavened bread there's a threat at the doorway, death outside, life within. They need to remain inside. And then they're taken out of the city. There's judgment that falls upon the city. And then they're brought to the mountain. Now, we've heard that story. That's the story of the Exodus. And that is something that we see on several occasions in scripture. We can see it earlier on in the story of Abraham. He goes down into Egypt. There are plagues upon Pharaoh as he takes Sarah. And they come out with many gifts. They end up exploring the land. And then there's um, a battle in the land of victory in chapter 14. Now, that's a pattern that occurs on several different occasions within Scripture. It occurs in its fullest form within the story of the Exodus. But when we get to the story of the New Testament, it continues there. Christ talks about the Exodus that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And then later on, you see the ways that (laughs) the Apostle Paul and others use that language of Exodus to describe what Christ has achieved. So, you have events like that. Then you can also think about realities. So, we talk about, for instance, the heavenly temple, and the heavenly temple is reflected in the earthly temple, which is reflected in turn in. The individual human body which is a sort of temple or the body of the church which is described as a temple or the body of christ that is described as a temple or the whole cosmos that is seen as a temple a dwelling place of god and so it's recognizing typologies a sort of impress of a higher reality upon something that's lower and then the analogies that allow for symbolic traffic between those things And so if we understand the theme of the Exodus, something going through history, we can see the way that that theme is developing and swelling until it arrives at its fullest form in the story of Christ. Likewise, we can see the way that the higher temple, the temple of heaven where God dwells, is reflected in the lower temple that gives us a way of understanding what it means to come into God's presence. So there's a reality-filled form or promise or symbol of what the higher temple involves so when we read in hebrews it talks about this temple or tabernacle as a model of the heavenly temple and so the sacrifices that are performed every year they're performed within something that isn't the real thing but give us a sense of connection with that and so it's a a way in which uh lower reality connects with a higher reality and as we live in terms of that lower reality as israel lived in terms of that lower reality they will be orchestrating their lives according to that higher reality that is impressed upon it and we can think about this also in terms of when we say that we want god's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven there's a sort of flowing out of the heavenly pattern it's impressed down upon earth and then it flows out out into the world so we can think again another example of this would be the higher heavens then the heavens that are the lower heavens so we can think about the sun moon and stars that represent heavenly bodies of rule and then there's a lower heavenly realm which is the temple of sanctuary which is the realm of god's dwelling place in a special way upon earth and then out from that things flow so we can think about the garden of eden as a sort of sanctuary in this regard so those are some of the ways in which jordan gives frameworks for thinking about the bible in terms of these patterns that are impressed from above these themes that continue within and we can orient ourselves within those realities whether those types pressed down from above or those patterns that are playing out so we can think of ourselves as a new creation we can think about ourselves as having undergone a new exodus or we can think about ourselves as those who stand like daniel in a particular situation or those who are like um, israel trying to conquer in the promised land or those who are wandering in the wilderness all these different patterns provide us with frameworks for understanding who and where we are. Well,
0: it's interesting. I kind of think, so if you're a Christian today and you reflect on the cross, a lot of things pop into your mind. A lot of associations, confidence, maybe when you're afraid, hope, when you're near death, gratefulness because of the man on the cross and so on. In the Old Testament, Exodus is almost kind of like that feeling of salvation. So as you noted in Genesis, you have Exoduses. Um, you know, more than like Lot, uh, Abraham, the Exodus itself. But even in the stories of Samuel, like the Ark has its own exodus in the early parts of First Samuel. Um, Isaiah's future is this idea of the desert becoming like a beautiful road, and you yep. have an exodus into the promised land. Uh, I think Mark's gospel begins with his Exodus language. And then, as you noted, uh, Luke's gospel has Jesus says uh, he's going to commit his exodus <laughs> before he goes to the cross. And if you don't understand all the symbolic resonance of the word exodus from Holy Scripture, by which I mean the Old Testament, it's hard to figure out how the cross is an exodus, as it were. Uh, but it is, and so I think I think that's uh, one level what you're getting at, or Jordan's getting at. The second one's a little bit hard, I think, harder for us to understand the symbolic world. I mean, if you, if you read the Bible, Psalm 24, for example, says that God founded the earth upon the waters and uh, upon the seas and so on, something to that effect. So you have this idea of the earth is like on top of water. Okay, it's interesting. Other passages uh, in Job, Isaiah, whatever, talks about the world being on foundations or the mountains or the uh, subsequent foundations. Isaiah talks about the sky being like a um, like a fabric spread across, you know, above you. And then the whole world has these, the Bible talks about the world in metaphors and make it sound like it's a house, like an ancient house, like a tent. And you're like, that's weird. Is that just a mere metaphor? But I think someone like Jordan or even Peter Light, sorry, Lightheart in his book, a House for My Name, which I'm holding up if you're on video says that these are not just mere beautiful sounding metaphors to without meaning behind them, but these symbols signify something real. You know, the sign and things signified if we're to borrow older Bible language from, or not older theological language from Augustine. So like th- there's something more going on in this world. You talked about the upper heavens, the lower heavens. I mean, Genesis one's an interesting example. Um A friend Ian, Professor Ian Clare and I have a podcast called Into Theology, and we're uh, going through Augustine's confessions right now for it chapter by chapter. And I think it's in book 12, Augustine looks at Genesis one and says, okay, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse eight, he spreads out the firmament, which he names as heavens. It's like a different, like, it's a different thing. So how are there heavens and heaven? And then he goes to the Psalms and I can't remember the Psalm offhand, but one Psalm distinguishes uh the heaven above that we see like the sky and where god lives which is invisible and that's the heaven of heavens i think it's the chilem chile or whatever it is and for augustine and yeah the bible does that and it's weird because i would suggest that most of us don't think of the world in that way so what's lost if we don't think of the world like the bible does
1: I think what's lost is the way in which these things are connected in ways that charge everything with meaning. So, for instance, if you're thinking about the tabernacle, if you read the description of the oh the instructions to build the tabernacle in Exodus chapters 25 to 31, it goes through the patterns of creation twice over. So if you look through the pattern it begins with the golden items that are at the centre of the tabernacle then the next is the structure of the tabernacle itself and then the next is the brazen altar in the courtyard and then the next is the um the light that was the um the oil for the lamps and then the next is the um high priest clothing then it's the setting up of Aaron and his sons and then it's the establishment of the pattern of worship and then it goes through it again and it's um and here at this point maybe you can recognize that there are patterns of creation here so it begins with the golden items which are like the light at the heart and then you have the um, altar of incense the other golden item then there's the um, structure, which is the firmament, the covering of the people with the tribute money. And then in the third slot, which connects with the forming of the land and the sea, you have the brazen altar and the brazen um, laver, the water and the land, the altar representing the land with its four corners. And then the fourth day, the light, the um, that's formed with the lamps, the oil for the lamps, but then the oil for the priests as well, because they're like lamps within the house. And then in the fifth slot, you have the garments of the priests, and you also have the clouds of the firmament, you have the incense. And then the sixth slot, you have the um, priests who are set up in their worship, and then you have the um, Bezalel and Holiab who are set up as as the tabernacle builders, and then the seventh It's the establishment of the Sabbath in chapter 31. So what you've essentially got there is a description of the building of the tabernacle in terms of the pattern of creation itself. And you've got key expressions that mark it out. So make everything according to the pattern for the first half. And then this being this way throughout your generations, the continuation, the delegation. And so essentially what it gives you is a way to think about what's taking place in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a world model. It's a miniature cosmos, but it's also a macrocosm of the human body. And then what you begin to see is that the whole world is charged with these forms of meaning that are formed through these analogies between things. So if you want to understand what the meaning of an event like um, the deliverance of Lot from Sodom is, recognize it against these other passages and these themes that are in parallel with it. So think about it in terms of the story of the Exodus. Well, think about it as a panel that is over against chapter 18, where you have the angels visiting Abraham. He's sitting in the door of the tent. There's again, there's a promise of life in the doorway where there's a threat of death in the doorway the next day or the next um, passage. You also have one woman made fruitful, the other woman turned into a pillar of salt. And so you're supposed to read these stories over against each other. And as you do so, things come to light that you would not otherwise see. So what we're essentially doing, I think, when we do this is recognizing the connections between things that allow for the meanings on one level to um, propagate at another level, to move down or to move up and to recognize the ways in which these things are connected in in illuminating in an illuminating manner so when i'm reading the story of the creation i'm recognizing this is a pattern that's played out in the tabernacle it's played out in it's related to the human body as well so the things that god says about the creation are not just things that happened in the original creation event they're patterns of reality that are played out as it were, within these nesting Russian dolls, and these different levels of reality have analogies with each other. And so the world has a meaningful structure, where higher realities are embedded and impressed upon lower realities, and where patterns develop and increase and intensify over history.
0: I think there are at least two things that prevent us normally from accepting what you just said. So One has to do with our expectation of mathematical equivalence. So like when you're reading the shape of the tabernacle, say, and there's purple thing, the cherubim and all that kind of stuff, you're trying to have like a mathematical equivalent. This is that where I think from based on what you just described in some of my own work, it's more like symbolic resonance. Like there's there's connections. I mean, Hebrews 10, for example, says that Christ's flesh is the, the veil you're like okay there's resonance there because yeah. what does the veil do it blocks access directly to god because inside there is the throne of god which is the mercy seat with the four you know corners four corners of the earth so on um so you have all this kind of going on. so that's that's a problem i think the second has to do and probably the more the more the bigger problem is our we're not great at the bible typically And one of the things that uh, I'm a weird Baptist, I suppose, most of the people I read are like Maximus the Confessor, Poche, or whatever, old old dead people, like really, really old dead people, even before the church began in 1517, which is a joke. Um, And they're doing things like this. You have Poche and his Matthew commentary uh, talking about the symbolism of the fish and the bread and feeding the 5,000. Uh, Origin of Alexandria is kind of famous for what people call allegorical interpretation. But, uh, uh, but what I think is really going on is these guys know the Bible really well. Just to give you one example Cyril of Alexandria, before he became a pastor, he'd be called a priest, but a pastor, he went to the desert and memorized the New Testament in Greek. Afterwards, he thought, maybe I can be a pastor now. And so these guys, I mean, Origin of Alexandria in particular, uh, because of his work on the Hexapla and, and his theological controversy and so on and his biblical commentary and his regular preaching he's he seems if you read his stuff he seems to know the bible so well that by memory he's citing uh passages that are similar to what he's reading just like do 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 like like almost like a, a machine gun and you begin now you can you can see that in two ways one he can be like well he's just doing allegory there's no connection or two you can pause. And ask the question, why does he make these associations? And I would say 90% of the time when you read him, it's because he's doing what you're talking about. He's showing how the Bible, the Bible actually has symbolic resonance across the canon. For him, scripture interprets scripture. And when we call it allegory today, at least, we mean um, he's mentioning one thing to signify something that's unconnected to the text. For For Origen, he always believed those, those cross-references had deep meaning that uh, connected and elucidated the meaning of the text, because for him, the literal intent was massively important to understand the deeper sense of scripture. And for him, yes, he called the spiritual meaning, but he means something like what we're talking about, this idea of this larger symbolic meaning. So uh, how do we, because I think what you're saying makes the Bible, I would almost argue more interesting, because like, why do you read first and second Chronicles? Let's ask the question today. I would argue that if you read it as a history book, it's pretty boring. And you don't like it's not like it's completely boring, but and you don't have all the details. I mean, the the first and second Kings mentions all these other historical books we don't have. I think first Samuel talks about a new constitution for Israel. And like, so you have all these uh, lost historical documents. So is first and second Chronicles merely the one that we didn't lose? (laughs) Or is there something else? there now i have to honestly say that i haven't done enough work to know why but I, this is a question i've been so i think uh, peter lightheart if i remember has a commentary on, uh on yes yeah, it's and a fairly King. recent commentary on first and I Second. i really characters. want to read it because uh, i loved his revelation commentary I, I, uh, his commentary
1: I on first and second kings in the same series yeah. is superb too is it it's i think for many people it's their favorite work of his
0: is it? okay well his his commentary on revelation i loved and um uh, it was just, it was just useful, good. Occasionally I disagreed or whatever. I didn't like what he said about impassibility, but, but it was just, it was such a, like there. It was one of the few commentaries that was genuinely useful because it didn't just say like, if you already know Greek, there's a lot of commentaries don't have much more to offer, you know? No. And, and by the way, that's not a knock because if you don't know Greek, you need that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that in a negative light. Okay. So talk to me about, why do we have books like the historical books, Kings and Chronicles? I mean, they're interesting in history, but you've described something in, in the Pentateuch, this richly symbolic world that transforms how we read the Bible. But then you get into uh, Judges, Samuel, Kings—is it just mere history? That's the uh, parentheses before Christ. Yeah, there something else there.
1: Well, if you actually read these books attentively, <laughs> you start to recognize that there are odd things going on there and that's one of the first places to start just being attentive and i've often tried to encourage people when they're reading the bible to shelve all their questions and just read the text of a particular chapter three or four times over just listening mm. and often it can be helpful just to listen to the text rather than reading it from a page and just listen and then as you've done that for a few times ask what questions arise from the text itself? So what within the text surprised you? What within the text seems out of place? What detail seems extraneous? What about the text seems jarring in the context? What about the text have you heard somewhere else? All these sorts of questions are things that arise from attention to the text. So let's say you're reading the story of Judges, and you begin to recognize there's this theme of people using these weird weapons. What's with the weird weapons? What's going on there? Well, why is it that we're told that there were five lords of the Philistines who give 1,100 pieces of silver to Delilah to betray Samson? Hmm. And then the next chapter in the story of Micah, there's another 1,100 pieces of silver. Why is it that when we're reading the story, we realize there's a, a jump back in time at the end of the book? We've got Phineas coming up. He's a character we know from Numbers. What's he doing appearing at the end of Judges when actually he should belong at the very, very beginning of the book of Judges? Why is he there? What's the theological purpose of framing the book and its narrative in a way that dischronologizes certain episodes? So although the text makes clear that this belongs at an earlier period, It's placed within a certain point within the narrative so that you're maybe reading that as a key to understand other things within it. So first of all, pay attention to some of the odd details. Things will emerge and you'll begin to ask questions that suggest there's more going on than you might first have thought. Let's take another example. If you're reading through the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel, you'll encounter passages that seem familiar and details. So let's say, Chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, you read the story of David spending time looking after, protecting the flocks and other things of Nabal. And Nabal responds with ingratitude and shows no favor towards David. And David, being angry, goes with 400 men to try and attack Nabal. He's um, pacified by Abigail sending waves of gifts Hmm. ahead and then... In the end, um, Nabal is judged. And all this happens around the time of sheep-sharing. What's going on there? Well, one of the things to notice is, first of all, Nabal is Laban backwards. And then 400 men coming to attack that are pacified by gifts, that's what happens in the story of Esau and Jacob. Esau comes with 400 men, and then Jacob sends waves of gifts ahead the time of sheep shearing that's the time that jacob leaves the house of laban and it happens at a key moment we have other details of that text that suggest these are parts of broader explorations of characters so if you're reading through these chapters you'll see many ways in which david is set up as a play between the characters of jacob and esau in certain respects who are the two characters described as ruddy in scripture Esau and David and then David in many ways is like Jacob. Jacob is someone who has these two daughters of his father-in-law that are mixed up so he's given the wrong daughter that he's promised not the daughter who was promised in marriage but the other daughter and that same thing happens with Merib and Michael. You have similar things with the deception of Saul so the use of goat skin the use of um, goatskin to disguise the model of David, the teraphim, a teraphim is dressed up as David. We've seen these things in the story of Laban and Rachel in the teraphim. We've also seen the same thing in Jacob being dressed up by his mother using goatskin so that he will get the blessing. So these are familiar themes that we've seen from the earlier story. And in some way, David is being cast as a Jacob-like character. Then there are two times when he interacts with Saul in the darkness. And Saul is characterized by the spear and also by the water pitcher. And these things are taken from him. And he also has part of his garment taken from him as he's within the cave. Now, in both of these cases, he's in the darkness of the cave or the darkness of sleep. And then he says later on, is that your voice, David, my son?
0: Hmm.
1: Reminds us of the story of Isaac and the blessing and Esau not getting the blessing. The reaction of um, Esau after, after Saul after one of these episodes is the same as Esau. He lifts up his voice and weeps. And so we're seeing this interplay between characters that harks back to earlier interplace between David, uh, between Jacob and Laban. We see Jacob and Laban in the story of David and Nabal, or the story of David and Saul. Or we see the relationship between Isaac and Esau and David and Jacob in the story of David and Saul. So Saul is the um, father who will not give the blessing to the right son. He wants to bless Jonathan. And Jonathan is, again, playing off characters like Esau. The greeting that Jonathan gives to David is the same greeting that Esau gives to Jacob in chapter 32. And so there are all these parallels that help us to read these characters off against each other and recognize that David is a mature form of Jacob who brings in characteristics of Esau without falling into the trap of Esau he becomes more complete as a result and we also recognize the way in which Esau is like Saul Esau Saul who despises his birthright we can see the ways in which Saul is like Laban he misuses his son-in-law he's like Isaac he gives the blessing in the darkness he blesses David and says he's the one that's going to receive the blessing And then on the other hand, Jonathan is like Esau. Jonathan is Esau who gives his garments to David um, or to Jacob. And he's the one who recognizes that he's not going to get the blessing, but he blesses the one who has been set apart by the Lord. And so recognizing all of these parallels suggests, okay, maybe there's more going on in these historical narratives than we might at first have thought. And that they're doing the same sorts of things as we see within the stories of the Pentateuch. You can see other things later on. And throughout the stories, there are these sorts of parallels.
0: So it seems to me that you have to make a couple of some assumptions. One, you have to assume whoever the authors are, whoever the readers are, are, for lack of a better word, theologians. And secondly, that they are intellectually able, uh, part of a literary, Group that can intentionally, or at least not even intentional, but just know these associations have a have this complex tradition to do this. Now, I think that's easily easily true, but I think most of us, when we read the Old Testament, there's a bit of a chronological snobbery that comes through, and we think, well, today we have complex literary writings in in our universities, but uh, the Hebrew people are very simple sheep herders. And they're merely writing down history as they see it. And if you're a little bit more 19th century historian, you might say they often get things wrong. Or if you're more 20th century, what I would say, liberal redux, kind of more in the evangelical world, you would say, no, no, it's inspired, so it's true. But they're just, it's just very simple stuff. So how do we how do we overcome that bias? Because I do think it's so built in. Not I, I articulated it very directly but most people don't i think they just read it as if they're like uh the average sheep herder writing a book but i mean that's all, <laughs> i just know that can't i mean just i'll give you i'll give you one reason then you, i'll let you hear yours it's like to be able to write in the ancient world was a super elite skill like virtually nobody could write it in the way that we do i mean you could maybe write your name and like uh, recipes and things but write a book was was not common unless you were a bait like a phd or whatever uh and also writing material and the writing culture is was is very limited to these these groups okay but yeah you give give some reasons for that because i think most of us might hear that and say well alistair you're reading these associations maybe they're there but they they're not possibly intended they're not you're overreading the evidence who cares about Nabel's name it's backwards laban like that's just silly you know so, so give a defense of your of what you just said in a more higher level way.
1: Yes. So I think the first thing to recognize is that these things have a sort of cumulative force. So if you just saw that thing with Laban's name by itself, it wouldn't really have much weight. There are many ways in which we can think about the reversal of names um, within scripture. There are many examples of that sort of thing. But when you see this sort of wordplay as a common feature throughout the biblical text um you see the same thing for instance in Esau's character um Esau's name being described as Edom after he eats the um the red red stuff that um, Jacob offers him sets it up as he's like Adam Adam and Edom are similar and there's a sort of um scene that's similar to the um deception of Adam by the serpent That's taking place here. Or we can think about the way that um, Seir, the place where Esau finally settles, is played upon words associated with goats. It's played upon um, the word for hairy, other things like that. Or we can think about the way that Laban plays upon. So you have Edom connected with red, Laban connected with white. Edom is deceived using the red stuff. Laban is deceived using the white stuff. white tree that has strips removed to reveal the white beneath that is used to get the um, goats to um, breathe in a particular way. Now, when we're looking through the text and we see many of these sorts of details accumulating, there's a stronger case for them being present. So there's that sort of thing. But I think the most basic thing is we believe that this text is divinely inspired. And so it doesn't depend upon the brilliance of its authors ultimately depends i think upon the inspiration of the holy spirit now beyond that we need to consider that we're used to reading texts that have been produced in a society where there are literally millions upon millions of texts in our right. language alone now within the ancient world texts were not common like that i think of the example of um the venerable bede who had a library at jarrow of about 200 volumes And that was huge for the time. And it was larger than either the libraries of um, Oxford or Cambridge in the year 1400. So 200 volumes was a lot of books. Think about the price that you'd have to pay to get some of these books. The cost of producing a book, you can have some sense of it when you think about the fact that a Gutenberg Bible produced using calfskin would require the skin of 180 calves. This is not something that the average person could afford. And so these were luxury items. They were produced by people who were very skilled artisans. Now, as you go through back even further, you just don't have that many texts to work with. And you have people who are, even the texts that you have are very much ordered around Particular texts. So people will be reading um, Homer's Iliad or um, think about the way in which the scripture has a lot of literature that develops around it in commentary from very early on. What you have in these texts is a deep cultural engagement with the text over many different centuries in community which is very different from the way that we engage with texts. We have such a multiplicity of texts. We're used to reading texts swiftly and to have the idea of having read a text. And we read, for instance, the news and we have a newspaper and it's very easy to read through the newspaper and think that we've gotten everything out of it because there aren't deep symbols, there aren't um, symbolic um, motifs that are playing through the text. There aren't ways in which these articles are playing off each other. There aren't deep motifs that are being explored. When you're reading the Bible, there are. And when you're reading ancient texts more generally, there are. You can't hurry the reading of something like Homer or um, reading Plato or something like that. You just need to dig into it and think a lot more carefully. If you're reading even something like Augustine, you'll see him playing off these themes. He and falls, as it were, with this um, eating from a tree. And so there are plays off the story of Genesis. Or there is the scene with his mother weeping as he departs for Rome from Carthage. That's Dido and Aeneas. We've had these stories, we're familiar with these things, but you'd have this deep resonance of those stories in a society that did not have the same number of stories that we have. But we do that too. Now Think about the MCU, as an example. People are familiar with this large number of films and other materials that have come out over a period of time, the number of waves, and they're familiar with the interplays between them because there's a body of texts, there's a body of films that are constantly alluding to each other. that's what the Bible's doing. That's what ancient texts do more generally. And we're not used to that, perhaps, in our broader body of literature, but we do have it within certain franchises. Think about Star Wars or think about Harry Potter. It's always taking place in those sorts of things. And this is Mm. something we're very good at doing as human beings, reading texts like that. And it's not as if it's just an ancient skill, but within the ancient world, when you did not have so many texts, when you had these texts that were written in a very dense and thoughtful way and produced through these there are also these communal processes of reading. Think about the way that we read things communally as well. When we're interpreting a film, we're constantly engaging in fora online and discussing Reddit, with people. What did, you, friends, yeah, whatever, yeah. what did you see in this? What was the connection That's that was right. going the on there? There was obviously something mm-hmm. significant in that particular detail being included in that frame. What is it doing there?
0: And you can see this too. I mean, if you look at a book like Joshua, the like even the the form of language is virtually, virtually identical to Deuteronomy. The book of Jeremiah, just many years after Deuteronomy is written, you could almost compare every verse to a verse in Deuteronomy and just, and you can hear Moses's words in Jeremiah's idiom. It's wild. And so there's even, yeah, there's just so much similarity. The other thing is that you didn't mention, but I think is important. is like, you would memorize texts I and mean, you know this already the proverbial thing being words written on your heart or deuteronomy 6 tells you to <laughs> talk about them whenever we are going somewhere uh or uh ezra like for all day basically reads the law to the people i mean in this kind of culture you may not everyone could read at the same the same way that we read per se but they could read by means of memory in fact most people who could read in the ancient world did it by means of memorization Um, I won't get into that because of the time, but I think the other
1: thing is we are far better at reading together than we are reading by ourselves. And if you think about the reading of an ancient text, they were primarily read aloud. It was like a musical performance. And um, until around the 10th century in Europe, you didn't really have divisions between um, words in texts in Latin. They were generally written until Irish scribes and their style caught on. You just had text that people had to be practiced at reading and then you'd read it aloud and people would hear and you'd comment upon it in um, conversation with a group of people. Now that changed over time, even before the printing press, but the ways that we engage with texts are very modern and maybe we have certain areas where we're getting back to aspects
0: of a more ancient way of engaging. Isn't that what text. Twitter's for? It is in some way. I, I kind of agree. It depends on you fall.
1: Uh, And it's also one of the things that we do in podcasts like this. There is the conversation over texts that you would not have to the same degree prior to podcasts. Uh, Think, For instance, about what we do in Theopolis, (laughs) where we're reading through a book of the Bible over many weeks with people who are thinking deeply about this um, from a number of different vantage points. You just don't have conversations like that prior to the podcast. Um, you'd maybe have an individual writing a book or you might have a seminar group with a few people getting together. But this is something that's new, but in other ways getting back to something that would have been yeah, done I, I in the agree. ancient synagogue.
0: A lot of people like podcasts too because they're over here in a conversation like a good, hopefully a good conversation. And a lot of people I think criticize the whole the new the new tech of communication. Um, but some of the critiques, I think are more generational than they are. Precise, and in fact, things like Zoom, possibly Twitter, they can be very useful. Now, I I could talk to you almost all day, I'm sure, about Bible things, but in order to kind of respect your time, it might be useful to kind of bring this to an end. But maybe to ask you, um, where people can find your work, and then secondly, if you could talk about it, you're with Theophilus going to work through James Jordan's book through new eyes. Just like, how do people find that? I mean, I know you could just Google Theophilus, but Yep.
1: So look for Theopolis um, on SoundCloud. So T-H-E-O-P-O-L-I-S. And it should be easy to find if you search Theopolis. Yeah. And I can leave SoundCloud. a link in the
0: podcast too. Yep.
1: And my own stuff is available on YouTube if you look for my name there. Also, I have um all of the stuff that I've produced ordered by Biblical Chapter that you can find if you go to audio dot Um And then I have a SoundCloud account as well.
0: Amazing. Well, thanks, Alistair, for the conversation. I appreciated it. And uh you genuinely made me more excited to like dive back into scripture. And I feel like if others share that excitement, that's a pretty huge success for a podcast.
1: Thank you.